Hi, I'm Chris Davenport, Norona Ambassador, Pro Skier and Ski Guide. I live and love the mountains and can't wait to share my stories. Welcome to Norona Podcast. My name is Ivan Eitzlot. In Norona Podcast, we want to inspire you and facilitate great adventures in nature by meeting exciting people and telling fascinating stories. In this episode, we will meet one of the most accomplished big mountain skiers out there. He has 80,000 followers on his Instagram account, Steep Skiing, and he travels the world with his skis, guiding, speaking, exploring, and inspiring us all. What kind of advice can he give to all of us who are curious about big mountain skiing? What is his background and where is he heading right now? It's an honor for us to welcome Chris Davenport, a professional skier and guide from the US, to our podcast studio here in Oslo, Norway. Welcome to our podcast, Chris. Fantastic. It's so great to be here, be here in Norway, be here in Oslo and uh, be here with Nerona. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome on the team. Thank you very much. I'm really excited. What do you think as an American about the Norona brand? Well, being a sort of ski industry insider, somebody that knows, you know, a lot about um, not only the sport, but the brands involved in the sport. I've been a fan of Norona, to be honest, for quite some time. Um, I remember when Backcountry.com was the first uh, online retailer in the U.S. to carry Nerona, I ran into a friend of mine who was wearing it. This is probably 2015, maybe. I don't remember the year. But my friend Jason in in, uh, Utah, we were skiing and he was wearing it. And I said, what is that? He's like, oh, it's this new Norwegian brand. I mean, to him, it was new. Little did he know that it was at the time 80 years old or whatever, you know, 75 years old. But uh, he, it looked great. And uh, having traveled in Scandinavia myself, I've been a fan of Scandinavian brands in general, not just clothing and apparel, but, you know, Saab and Volvo, for instance, like Swedish cars and um, other things. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I saw that and it it sort of, I made a mental note. And then over time, the last five, six years, I started seeing it more and more. One of our, one of my really close friends uh, has a retail store in Aspen where I live, Hamilton Sports. And Greg picked up Nerona as one of the first brick and mortar retailers. Okay. And so when he brought it in, I was like, okay, this is cool. Uh, and yeah, so again, always in the back of my mind, always paying attention to what brands are doing uh, in terms of their innovation and their style. And um, I didn't really know much about the values of the company yet. I was just looking at the product from from afar. Yeah. Um, but now, you know, here we are in 2022 and <laughs> I'm with Nerona. And You're I'm, on the team. Yeah, it's like it was meant to happen. So exciting. And now you've been riding the woods surrounding Oslo. Yes. On a borrowed uh, mountain bike? Yes, but I, I borrowed it from uh, super pro Thomas Klingenberg. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. Also on the team? From his father, yeah. Uh, that, so that was really cool. Um, also on the team. Uh, yeah, actually my first time mountain biking in Norway. Yeah, I've been, of course, skiing all over. Uh, when I was younger, I came over here and did some uh, trekking and hiking with my family. Okay. But uh, yeah, first time on the bike here. And it was interesting. It reminded me so much of where I grew up in the Northeast in New England. Yeah. So I'm from New Hampshire, which is, you know, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire. It's kind of the Northeast corner of the United States uh, to to put it on a map. And it's granite. It's called the Granite State, all granite rocks and pine trees with big roots. And that's the kind of riding that we were doing with with, uh, Froda the other day. A little bit slippery if it rains. Oh, for sure. Slippery on the rocks, slippery on the roots. Really technical riding where you have to be, you know, putting putting power to the pedals all the time, and Mm. but also absorbing. I I guess of living in Colorado and riding a lot in Utah in the desert southwest. It's a lot of flowy. I don't know. For me, I'm more of a cross-country rider. I'm a big cyclist. I ride every day and I ride gravel bikes and road bikes and mountain bikes. Um, But I don't ride a lot of technical cross-country trails. It's more going for 50, 60 kilometer rides Mm. rather than a 10 kilometer, you know, super techie. On an enduro bike. On an enduro bike, exactly. But you are going to join the famous Scandinavian get-together, high camp at Tutagra. Yes. Later today. Yeah, we're driving up there this afternoon. Actually, after we're done with this podcast, I'm going to 
take the train over to the Nerona offices and load up the car and uh, hit, go on a road trip. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, super excited. I've, uh, of course, known about Free Fleet magazine yeah. for more than 20 years. I've had many photos in the magazine over the years and I've done some interviews. I remember coming here uh, to Oslo one time. I, I used to ride for Heli Hansen. This is a long time ago, like in the 2000s. And uh, was here with them for some sales meetings, and we went and visited the Free Fleet offices and talked to the gang there. And uh, so, I knew about this festival, and I always wanted to go. So it's going to be cool. I'm psyched to meet a lot of people, of course, know, just shake hands and talk, and of course, do some skiing. Yeah, that's important. But um, I'm gonna are you having some lectures? Or yeah, I'm going to yeah. do a slideshow. Slideshow. Yeah, a I'm good gonna, old I'm one. M- multimedia <laughs> yeah. show. Yeah, talking about uh, pictures, sound, everything. Everything. Yeah, yep, yep. Videos. Um, t- and my topic is uh, airplane skiing in Alaska. Airplane skiing. Yes. You know what that is? Yeah, I think so. so you, you have to explain it. Well, using an airplane to take you skiing. So okay. we think of ski touring, human powered. We think of heli skiing with a helicopter. Yeah, we heard about that. Yeah, of course. This is this is airplane skiing using a small bush plane with skis on it. You fly in, land on the glacier unload your gear, set up a beautiful camp and spend a week ski touring and climbing big lines and skiing. <laughs> Sounds amazing. It's, it's amazing. And it's super affordable because yeah. the airplanes are a lot cheaper than helicopters. Um, this is where you, we go in Denali National Park. It's the highest peak in North America. So you're in the park, you're staring up at the 6,000 meter peak of Denali and it's too far to get uh, by foot or walking. So no one's there. You know, you can only get there with an airplane. And uh, I've done a lot of these trips, uh, both personal trips with friends and also with clients as a guide. And I just came from Alaska a couple of weeks ago and did two of these. Um, And it is just mind blowing. It's one of my favorite things to do. So I'm going to share those stories with the the gang up there. We must must go there and take a look at the show. Hopefully people like it. (laughs) (laughs) Back in uh, like the 70s, the 60s, that was allowed in Norway as well. To go into the mountains with a plane. Oh, really? And uh, you have to see some pictures. Oh, cool. Of that period. Yeah, I don't think of Norway as having like a, a small aircraft culture, like with people with a lot of airplanes. No, now it's like really small. Okay. And uh, it's more about landing on water. Mm. But uh, Well, that would make sense since there's so many archipelagos of islands and of course fjords. And, mm. it's, a, and, and it's the same with Alaska. I mean, Alaska is so big that the only way to move around is by an airplane. Yeah. And so there's more small planes per person there than anywhere in the world. It is. Yes. The world's largest um, float plane base is in Anchorage. Float plane meaning a a plane with floats like pontoons that lands on water. Right by the Anchorage International Airport, it's called Lake Hood. And there's thousands of planes on floats in the water. It's so cool to see. (laughs) And they're just flying everywhere. (laughs) And can you land wherever you want? Or is there some kind of restrictions? No. Well, there's probably some restrictions. I don't know all the rules, but um, if it's water, I think you can kind of land wherever you want. Yeah. Um, And there's also a ton of, or thousands of airstrips, small dirt strips throughout the state where people land. Um, And good pilots as well. Oh, yeah. Bush pilots, they're called. Bush pilots. Because they fly in the bush. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a nice yeah, the bush pilots. Uh, occupation or profession. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is. I know these people are fantastic. And when you get with a good pilot, I, I fly with the same guy every year when I'm up there. And it's just, they're so professional. And so it's like the airplane is just an extension of their body. Yeah. yeah. Kind of like skis are an extension of you and, you and I. You trust them with your life. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Yeah. But we need to rewind a little bit and to find out how you became one of the most accomplished big mountain skiers out there. When did it all start mm. and, and where? <laughs> well, where it started was in New England, in New Hampshire, where I grew up. Um, you know, small mountains, but uh, a lot of them. There's a lot of ski culture there going back to the 1930s. And my grandfather was a skier he and was. he raised his kids as skiers. So my father grew up skiing and ski racing. Um, he went to the University of Denver and was a ski racer there and actually lived with a, a bunch of Norwegian ski racers. He did. Yeah, he did. A lot of his friends were from Oslo and in, in the area. So we came over here when I was a kid to visit my oh. dad's friends. So you've been here a lot. I've been here, yeah. I mean, a number of times. Yeah. Um, and 
yes, we just were fortunate to have a family that loved skiing. I was born into a family that was passionate about the outdoors and loved to go to the mountains. And, and so consequently, that's what I grew up loving. Um, I got into biking, I got into rock climbing and hiking and camping and, and skiing all because of my family's love for the outdoors. All the good stuff. All the good stuff. Yeah. I was exposed to it. And I went to a high school, um, when I was, I guess, 14, that, uh, was a boarding school that had a really good ski racing program and outdoor program with climbing and camping and all these things. And so it was a, I, I lived, I moved out of my family's home when I was 14 to go do these things and never to live at home again. Oh, <laughs> to become a ski racer, uh -huh. a professional exactly. one. Yep. A ski yeah. racer. And that was the plan. Well, I was or the gonna, ambition, the ambition. Yeah. I would, I was going to see how far I could take it. I don't think I really had a plan except that I, I loved the sport and I loved all my friends that were doing it. It was social and we were training and working hard and I didn't know it at the time, but I really loved being an athlete. Mm. You know, I just, it, it was something that came natural to me. Yeah. Uh, and my siblings were the same. Both of my sisters uh, were on the world cup ski racing at the U S ski team super high level. Oh. They were incredible. So all of us were succeeding in skiing them before me, uh, just to keep, keep this moving. I went to the university of Colorado. So I left new England, moved out West to Colorado. I wanted to expand my horizons, not just with skiing, but with rock climbing and with biking and just bigger mountains and more opportunities. And that was incredible. Because Colorado is the, the mountain state, right? Well, yeah, it's got more high mountains than anywhere else in the lower 48 states. And it's, um, and we can get into that later talking about 14,000 <laughs> yeah, foot peaks, but, uh, yeah. And, and just the culture of the ski town and the ski bum and I don't know, something about Colorado just kind of spoke to me. So yeah, I had a great, uh, time at university there and, and did, you know, worked hard in school and got a great education. And, uh, when I graduated, I moved to Aspen and I moved to Aspen really to be a ski bum and kind of figure it out and see what, uh, I wanted to do. I'll, I'll tell one quick story. When I was like 13 years old, in New Hampshire, I was riding the chairlift with this friend of mine, Justin, one day, and we were having this great day. I think we were probably training ski racing, but the skiing was really good. And I remember looking at him and him looking at me and we said to each other, God, wouldn't it be cool if we could just ski every day for the rest of our lives? <laughs> like this really happened. That's the best conversation. Yeah, he's still a friend of mine. And I didn't, again, realize it at the time, but like that is the sort of um, mantra that I live by now is like everything I do should point to me being able to ski every day. Sounds like a great passion. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like living the dream. So as this little kid, I had that dream and this, and it's actually played out. <laughs> now you're here. Uh, it's, now I'm here. It's it's kind of crazy. And what's your age now? Uh, I'm 51. 51? Uh-huh. From 13 to 51 and skiing almost every day. Yep. yep. That's a it's good been one. a lot of a lot of hours, a lot of days. That's congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I'll pat myself on the back because I'm still here. Uh Skiing's dangerous and I've had some accidents and different things. And, uh, I'm now like of the mindset that I've made it this far. I'm not going to screw it up now. I'm a little more conservative and just enjoying sort of different aspects of the sport. Yeah. Yep. You have some friends that not, that's not here. Anymore. If I told you how many you would be shocked. Yeah. How many? 40, 50. That's it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's really sad. And what's your, what's and, your, and every year, more every year. What's your reflections around that number? Um, my reflections around that number are, are it's it's tragic and um, the sport is dangerous and we put ourselves in risky situations, sometimes thinking we're professionals and we know what we're doing. And most of these people that I'm speaking of were professionals and knew what they were doing. And uh, it could have been me. And so it was them and not me. I don't know why. Uh, it's just the way the world works. You reckon it's just pure luck or do you have some other safety? No, I mean, I can't, I can't claim that I have something that someone else didn't know. No. So I, I think it's just a numbers game. And again, somehow I'm still here. So I reflect on that as I get older mm. and, um, it's not so much, Oh, people say, well, you had kids. So that's probably, it wasn't having kids that, um, changed my perspective. It was more like just losing friends all the time. Mm. And I'm sure I haven't sat with a, psychologist or psychiatrist, or I'm not sure which one of those would, would, would be the one, but like, I'm sure I have some PTSD and like some kind of issues surrounding like death that's been around us all the time. You think so? Oh, how can you not? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm sure. But uh, it's just feels feels very part of the sport. Yeah. And, you know, the media has covered this. I mean, Powder Magazine did a feature on the cover. Why do so many of the best skiers keep dying? Like, and, you know, whether it's in the half pipe and terrain parks or um, in big mountains mm. or in avalanches and different things, it's, it's um, sort of a dark corner of this incredible activity that, we, that we do. Um, and but I is it all about pushing the limits for every year or is it something else? No, I think it's something else. I think it's more a function of how much time you are out there in the mountains. You know, it's like... Like statistics. It's statistics. Yeah, that's my, that's my belief. Mm -hmm. um, it's, statistically, it's risky anyway. And then if you're doing it a lot, you know... It gets even it, it more could get dangerous. You. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're a race car driver, you might be the best race car driver in the world. Mm. You're going to get in a crash. It's going to happen for yeah. sure. 100% certainty. And then, you know, that sport has become safer and safer. So people aren't dying. If you're a mountain guide or a professional skier, you are going to get in an avalanche. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen. Mm. Then the question is, what safety precautions do you have? Do you have your team? Do you have your proper equipment? You know, have you properly looked at your um, exposure on the line that you're skiing. There's all of these things. Um, and yeah. You, you've I, done your personal portion of uh, extreme skiing. Yeah. And you, you joined the, the US extremes already back in like 94 or something. Yeah, that was my first competition. Yep. With a bunch of people that are known today of really, really yes. extreme skiing, like Seth Morrison, Doug Coombs, Wendy Fisher. Yep. People like that. Yep. And Doug Coombs was one of your big mentors as he, well. Yeah, Doug was a fantastic mentor who I met in 94. And uh, I looked up to him as somebody who was not only a beautiful skier, but had a mountain sense. You know, he spoke the language of the mountains. Uh, he understood snow. He understood terrain and weather. And like, that's what I wanted to do. And um, so, so he translated all his experience into this kind of language. Yes. So he could almost speak the language of the mountains? Well, yeah, I, I like to use that analogy yeah. because I believe nature... It's a poetic metaphor. <laughs> it is. I mean, nature, whether it's the ocean, the, the forest, the mountains, um, it's just doing its thing out there. And mm. it's up to us as humans to understand that, you know, and like native cultures were very good at that because they were very plugged into to nature, yeah. the native people. Um, but Western people tend to be distracted by the artificial world that we've created around us. Uh, and so for me, like when I'm out in nature, I'm not thinking about anything else except what's happening right around me. And that's under, that's being fluent or having fluency in the language of the mountains. Mm. So it's a cool way to kind of think about it. Um, nature doesn't hide anything from us. It's all right in front of us to be able to see, but it's up to us to mm. open our eyes and our ears and all of our senses to see it. It's an honest place to be. It's Yeah. The Always most, honest feedback. The most, the most honest place to be. Yep. But how was your reaction? How did the accident of like Doug Coombs affect mm. you? It affected me immensely, and I'll you know, like because he he ended his life in a steep mountainside in yeah. in the Alps. He did. Yes. Um, in La Grave. In La Grave, France. Yep. In 2006. And I'll never forget where I was because I was in 2006 trying to climb and ski all 54 14,000 foot peaks in Colorado, 4,000 meter peaks. Mm. And I was on a mountain that day skiing, not a super extreme one by any means, but I was out there working on my project and I came off the mountain and back to the trailhead and to the car and drove some distance where there was uh, mobile or cell service. Mm-hmm. And my phone just lit up with like 30 text messages. And I was like, uh-oh, that's not normal. That's not Some, good. Something happened. And it was all like people saying, sorry, heard about Doug. You know, I know he was your friend. Like on and on and on. I was like, oh my God, I'm in the middle of this dangerous project where I'm exposing myself every day in the big mountains. And here's my hero, my mentor, mm -hmm. who was as good as anybody, made one little mistake and that's it. And so it was a real, um, I don't know, reflection point. I had to really look inside myself and ask myself if what I was doing made sense, if it was fair to my family, should I? Because you had already kids back then. Yeah, I had two at that point. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, but 
at the same time, after thinking about it and after being very upset and crying and kind of getting that out, I came back and I was like, well, Doug would want me to keep skiing and I want to keep skiing and I'm just going to use that, use his energy and his passion. And hopefully that'll help me. Yeah. So yeah. skiing is so deeply rooted into your life yeah. and soul that it was not an option to stop this no, big, I dangerous mean, 14ers project. I, it, I mean, I guess it was an option, but I'm a skier. It's, it's who I am. It's <laughs> yeah, what I do. It's not, it's not even what I do. It's who I am. Yeah. Like that is me. <laughs> and without that's it. That's your identity. It's my identity. It really is. It's not, and it's not something that, um, you know, I just created. It actually, it actually just evolved to be that way. As I told the story earlier of growing up with mm. a family that did that. Um, but as a father and as a husband, I... I'm a little bit curious about your conversation with your wife. Mm -hmm. When you get back from this mountain, you've heard that one of your best friends and mentors uh, had an accident. Yep. A fatal one. How is that conversation and how you deal with it? Yeah, it's, I don't know. We, I mean, we talk about it, you know, we give each other a big hug and it's, it's kind of just like, a, oh my gosh, another one. <sighs> She's not, a skier as well. My wife is a hardcore skier. She's been a ski patroller in Aspen for 31 years. That's she a, skis a lot. Um, she's amazing. That's how you met? That's how we met. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's the thing that we love, probably first and foremost, and then we love each other on top of it. <laughs> But we both love skiing. Uh, I think that our conversations around th this topic now are, are very short, and it's more just like, Oh my gosh, another one gone and, you know, celebrate that person and kind of mm. remember them. But it's not a long conversation. No. How can it be? And she shares your passion, understands your way of life. She does. Yeah. But in fact, she's been the most supportive, encouraging uh, partner you could ever imagine. Even when the times were tough and... um things weren't going well or when it, whatever she was like, get back out there. You got this. Like, you know, yeah. there was never any like, um, well, I, sh I shouldn't say never. There was a couple of times where she was like, you know, maybe you should think about retiring and getting a real job because all your, all <laughs> she your, said that. <laughs> oh yeah. She's like, you know, all your friends that, are, that went into real estate are making a shitload of money yeah. and, uh, that could be nice. So she's also, yeah, she's also realistic, but, um, The encouragement and the support uh, has been a, of my wife has been a huge part of my success. Mm. You know, having a partner that um, is there for you and encouraging, and not sort of behind the scenes with negative energy. Like uh, I don't know what the word would be like, um, resenting that you're always traveling. Yeah, I you know, I'm always traveling to amazing places, and I call home, and I'm you know in Oslo or I'm in. Zermatt or Verbier or I'm in Japan or I'm in Chile, you know, and she could be like, oh my God, you get to go to all these great places and what am I, but she's not like that. She, and she does get to come with me, mm. you know, here and there, which is great. And do you bring your boys as well? Yeah. They've been all over the world too. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, how old are they? Uh, they're, they're 21, 19 and 14. Okay. So they are living their own lives now and they're all ski racing and grown up boys, grown up boys. They're all out of the house where okay. we have no kids around. I mean, they come back in the summer sometimes, but, yeah. um, It's But, cool. It's cool to see them uh, find their own path. And are they all skiers? Yeah, they're all ski racing. Like pretty into it. Okay. Yeah, especially uh, the middle one is like very very good. Uh, older one is racing for the university, like a, but like the club team, not the top top level team. So okay. he's they go do their ski races and have beers and they have fun. <laughs> and then the 14 year old is just kind of figuring his own path out, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. How is uh, how was an everyday normal day back home at the Devonports a couple of years ago. Yeah. When, when they all stayed at home. When the kids were home. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, How was a, that lot, day? a lot going on, you know, um, my wife and I would be always be up early, like 6am and, uh, have a coffee and do some stretching. And then it was time to get the kids up and start moving and get three kids clothes, you know, clothes on. That's easy with boys because they just put clothes on. They don't care what they look like. <laughs> That's a good part yeah, about boys. You know, and then, uh, you know, get some food in front of them and quick, 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 eat some breakfast and take them down to the bus and they get on the bus and go to school. And we would hop in the car to go to the mountain to go work, to mm. ski. Mm. Um, and then one of us would 
either be picking the kids up from the bus in the afternoon and, or they're, we have to pick them up to get to training for ski racing or it was a lot. And I, I can't take that much credit because my wife did most of it. Even, even though she always was working too, she handled a lot of the load. It was pretty impressive. That's impressive. Yeah. Cause you know, I'd be gone for a month at a time guiding or filming or competing or whatever. And, you know, she somehow managed to do all those things. How many travel days do you have each year? You know, it's somewhere, I mean, I'm skiing around 180 or 200 days a year. Uh, travel days before, before the pandemic was, yeah, probably around 200. Um, just depends on the year. It's so, I mean, one of the silver linings of the pandemic, and there were many, is that it was so nice not to travel. It was <laughs> so nice to not get on an airplane for a year. You enjoyed it. Oh my gosh. It was fantastic. Yeah. I just loved being home and we live in the most beautiful place and it's just, I can do every sport, everything right from my backyard. So, um, you live in Aspen. Mm -hmm. I live just outside Aspen. Yeah. How would you describe Aspen as a, as a place or a city? Because <laughs> in Norway, we tend to think about it as a, like a high end. Yeah. Well, that uh, would be accurate. Ski destination. That would be very accurate. <laughs> it is a super high-end ski destination. A lot of rich people. It's mind-blowing how many, yes, there's a lot of wealth there. Uh, they're all coming from somewhere else, typically. Um, it's a small city. We call it the city of Aspen. It has everything of a city, culture, art, music, um, food, rest, amazing restaurants, um, and four, four ski resorts, four ski areas. A lot of big mountains with incredible terrain, uh, perfect for skiing, for climbing, for great cycling, rivers, uh, lakes. I mean, it's it's a natural paradise. So mm. consequently, there's a lot of local people that live there because the mountains are so amazing. So the local culture, uh, the local people are all athletic and highly educated, hardworking. Um, they kind of make up the core of the community. Mm. And then you have these sort of these, well, you have tourists, of course, that come and go, yeah. but then you have this other group of people, which are like sort of wealthy second homeowners that might think, might call themselves locals, but they don't really live there, you know, but they have 10 or $20 million homes <laughs> and they like to Let's stop by. Yeah. They like to come and kind of, and, and, you know, during COVID so many more of those people have come. And so it's, uh, it's really been changing the fabric and dynamic of the town. And, and I think there's a lot of soul searching going on in town right yeah. now. Uh, a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. Um, in fact, the, the town itself has stopped its marketing of the town. We're not going to, we're not attract, we don't want any more people. Forget it. It's too busy. There's too much money. Just let's just take a breath, a deep breath and pause and kind of figure everything out. So the real estate prices, they are just... Yeah. Rocket sky. I mean, it was already expensive before COVID. I think the average home price was like five or six million and now it's like 10 million. So yeah. it's impossible for a normal person to live there. It is impossible. 10 million. Yeah. <laughs> average, <laughs> which means, you know. Yeah. Dollars. Yeah. Dollars. Yeah. So uh, yeah, not Knox. <laughs> <laughs> not Norwegian. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's just part of It's an, it's such a beautiful, and this is not just Aspen. It's every mountain town in the West. Telluride, Vail, Steamboat Springs, Jackson Hole, Sun Valley. Um, you know, you can name all these beautiful places. They're all experiencing the exact same growth, the exact same uh, price uh, growth, I guess, mm -hmm. real estate growth. Um, and consequently, Difficulty with workers, workforce housing, work shortages. You can't find anyone to work because no. nobody can live there. So, so it's a big problem. The workers have to stay like... Oh, 40 miles away. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have traffic and commuting going on. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues, but I'm sounding quite negative. It is still an amazing place to live. It's an amazing local community of skiers and mountain people. Yeah. And we're, we're still a ski town and we need to remind ourselves every once in a while that we are a ski town and that's the thing that comes first. Mm. Um, and without the tourists, we don't have any of this money. So we need tourism. Let's rather talk about the 14ers. Yeah. Let's talk about some cool mountains. because that's <laughs> yeah. why we're here to talk on this yeah. podcast. <laughs> you had this amazing project some years ago. It's like 10 years ago. Uh, more now. Gosh. 15. Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I watched a movie. Okay. Yesterday and uh, it was amazing. Cool. To see you just climb all these mountains. Yeah. 
And you have to explain, you had these 14ers, and that's like 14,000 feet. Yes. And that's above like 4,200 meters or something? Yep. Oh, it's basically 4,200 meters. Yeah. Yep. So, and how many of them? Yeah. So there's 54, 54 mountains in Colorado above 4,200 meters. And so it's a lot of high mountains. And we have 600 mountains above 13,000 feet. So that would be 3,800, I guess. It's almost like the Alps. Well, my, 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 yeah, I mean, the Alps, you have, I think, 84,000 yeah, meter peaks something or something like that. like that. So, yeah, kind of similar. Yeah. Um, I mean, the mountains of the Alps tend to be steeper and maybe a little more uh, difficult, or at least a lot of mm. them. Plus, the Alps have glaciers. We don't have any glaciers. But the height, height is but there. The height is there. Yeah. But also, we, we live higher. You know, in the Alps, the valleys are quite low, 1,000 mm-hmm. meters, 1,500. My house is at um, 2,000. 300 meters yeah so that's why you're so fit i guess 2200 <laughs> yeah just the, the towns in colorado and the mountains are high that's higher up than like st moritz yes oh much higher in switzerland yeah i think that's on 1800 meters or something yeah i think so so yeah it was a it was a really cool project and it came to me just as a epiphany kind of just an idea that popped into my head i was I've always been very goal oriented. I love setting goals every year. Like, You're an okay, athlete. Yeah, I'm an athlete. I'm like, what am I going to do with the next season? Mm. Like make a list. What are some things that I can check off that would be really cool to do? And in 2006, actually in 2005, summer of 2005, I'd been competing on the Freeride World Tour for you know 10 or 11 or 12 years. I had been filming with Matchstick Productions and Warren Miller. I don't know. For a long time, I'd done 20, 30 ski movies already. And it started to feel the same every season. Make mm-hmm. some f- movies, uh, compete. Sounds strange to me. But I know. I mean, that sounds like, oh my God, that's so awesome. Why would you care? But I was looking for something more. You know, yeah. I'd kind of like done that thing. And, and I was just looking around and I was out on a mountain bike ride near my house, riding by myself through the forest, thinking about the coming winter and what I wanted to do. And this idea or this word, 14ers, popped into my head. I started thinking like, oh, okay, the the 14,000 foot peaks in Colorado, they've only been skied by one guy who was another mentor of mine, kind of like Doug Coombs, this guy, Lou Dawson. Yeah, I heard about it. And he skied all the 14ers. He started in 1979 and he finished in 1992. 13 years. Yeah, took a long time. And Uh, your goal was? My goal was to do it as fast as I could, maybe one season. Um, And I thought I could do that. So again, this is like, when Lou did it, it was before the internet, of course. Um, there was some summer hiking guidebooks, but no information about skiing. Very little information about avalanches. And we have big time avalanche problems in, in Colorado because of okay. our continental snowpack. And so he, he, had, a, he had a great project and um, probably a little bit ahead of his time. But then I came along and was like, huh, I, I can do that. But how fast can I do it? And so I, I rode my bike home that day, came into the, the kitchen of my house. And I was like, Jesse, to my wife, I was like, I've got this great idea of this project I'm going to do this winter. Um, she's like, okay, cool. With looking at me and I'm like, I'm going to climb and ski all the 14ers. And she was like, uh, I thought you were trying to reduce your risk. And like, we have kids now. And I'm like, oh yeah, you're right, I guess. <laughs> so, Shouldn't you just get a normal job? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, this was right around the same time that she was thinking that maybe I should you know, take a, take a, um, a different path, but I couldn't get the idea out of my mind. And so I uh, went into that season to pursue this goal. And um, it was one of the coolest things I ever did because it took me to all these places that I would not have gone if I hadn't, you know, had this list, this to check off mm. of all of these peaks and uh, shared it with a lot of different partners. I had like 23 or four different people that I skied with because I was always trying to find people to come along with me. I didn't want to do it by myself, obviously. Um, and I wanted to see how fast I could go, see how strong I could get. And we have to go back in in the time machine to 2006 and think about the equipment. There was very little backcountry or, or off-piste or ski touring gear. You know, the boots were terrible. I mean, Scarpa had the Denali. It was big and heavy, but, you know, there was no Dinafit bindings in the United States. Um, they were just starting in the Alps. I mean, they were around, but we didn't have them. So you had the Fritschi Diamond. Yeah, yeah, I had Fritschi. Like we did. Exactly. Yeah, we had. I was using Fritschi from um, a the, good but heavy binding. Yeah, I mean, it was it was all I had access to, yeah. you know. And uh, I had some rental ski boots from Solomon because they had a walking mode. 
right? Okay. They weren't even ski touring boots. They were like boots for like beginners so they could walk. Sounds terrible. <laughs> but they, they actually were really good. I put an intuition liner and stiffened them up and um, yeah. And there was no specific ski touring skis. So no. like, you know, lightweight skis like we have now. Um, so I, th- I look back on my equipment and that's one of the funniest things about the whole thing um, is this project and the amount of publicity and sort of media coverage that it got uh, really helped kickstart the the growth in ski touring equipment um, development and gear mm-hmm. because people started looking like ski mountaineering. It's starting to become a thing. Like look at Chris's project. Look at these other things that are going on. Maybe we should start investing some money in lighter weight stuff yeah. and uh, or in start importing products from Europe. And that started happening. And it was, you know, 2007, 2008, 2009, all of these things started getting going. That was a good thing. It was a very good thing. Yeah. But the project, how did you manage to get up to like over 50 mountains at that height yeah. in such a short time? I think uh, being well organized, having like good planning yeah. um, was and, and having good teammates for sure. Good support. That, that's how you do it. Um, Willing to take risk. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's risk, but it's more about like being organized and like, and having good planning. And so that you're not taking unnecessary risks, you know, exactly what you're going to get into every single day. Mm -hmm. And you're never going to get caught by surprise when you're caught by surprise, meaning something happens that you didn't expect that's, you've made a mistake. Mm. You know, you, you didn't do enough homework or so anytime I'm in the mountains now, I always want to do my research, whether it's understanding the weather and the avalanche forecast, understanding the the map, the terrain, the GPS, mm. understanding all of that. So when I do go out in the mountains, I know exactly what I'm getting myself into. And if something catches me by surprise, then um, I didn't see that coming and, and that's not good. So no surprises. That was that was a big part of it. Mm. That's the key word. Yeah. No surprises. Yep. Just, just be ready for... But you must have been experiencing like deteriorating weather conditions and stuff like that. We did, although, you know, I I did a lot of research on the weather every day, so I kind of knew what to expect. There was only of the 54 mountains, I think I only had to turn around like three times or four times. One one time for sure was because of weather. It was super windy and really cold mm-hmm. and everybody was getting frostbite and it was like, we got to get out of here. And then a couple other times I turned around because there was not enough snow and it was too many rocks. Okay. It's like, uh, we can't even ski this. So <laughs> we have to come back when there's more snow. That's natural. Yeah, it's natural. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, the, the 54 mountains in Colorado are spread out across the western part of the state. So they're not mm-hmm. all in one place. Um, and how big is the state? It's really big. Yeah. It's like Norway. I mean, well, it's, yeah, it's not as long as Norway, obviously, but to drive from one corner of the state across to the other corner would be like 13 hours or something, yeah, yeah. you know? I mean, it's big, but in, in the West, there's different mountain ranges. They're all part of the Rocky mountains, mm-hmm. but they're all these sub ranges. We have the San Juan mountains near Telluride, the Sangre de Cristo mountains in the South that go down into New Mexico in Aspen. It's the elk mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's various other ranges too. So each each range has its own personality. Each range has its own type of snowfall. Some are drier than others. Some have more snow. Uh, so you get to be very intimately uh, um, aware of each mountain range's characteristics, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I love that. I, we were talking earlier about the language of the mountains and plugging into them and really feeling what goes on. And you get to know each mountain range and the kind of like what to expect there, which is cool. Mm. Yeah. And you accomplished to summit all of these mountains in like one year? Yes, I got really close to doing it all in one season. So I finished 46 of the 54. In just one just winter season? By June, yeah, between January and June. And so um, I think back on it now and I actually took some time off to go on some film projects um, that year in the middle of the season. Like in uh, March, I went to Bella Coola, British Columbia with Doug Coombs and Seth Morrison and Shane McConkey mm-hmm. to make this movie Steep, which yeah. is the history of ski- of uh, steep skiing. I remember that And so movie. I took two weeks there and that's two weeks that I could have gotten some more of these 14ers <laughs> done. Um, so I kind of look back, like I could have done it faster for sure. I could have finished it in one season. Do you regret it? Uh, no, I, I don't regret it because, you know, I, I finished the next winter in mm-hmm. January. So 363 days. 
So just under a year. Mm. So that was pretty cool. And it took another 12 years for somebody to come along and break my record. So the record, the record actually stood for quite a while, which was cool. And what's the new record? Oh gosh, the new record uh, was by this is this friend of mine named Josh Jesperson, who was a former Navy SEAL. <laughs> he is a split border, a snowboarder, and he did it in like sounds like a tough guy. Yeah, he's a tough guy. He did it in I can't remember the number. It was like seventy or eighty days or something okay. in one season. Yeah, he did it. Yeah, and uh, would you like to break his record? N- no, I mean. I, I'm very happy and very comfortable <laughs> in my own skin. It was a super project. And, uh, um, but I am interested in seeing someone come along who's more schemo oriented, mm. fast and light. Cause I, I think you could climb and ski all these in like less than 30 days, probably. You think so? Mm-hmm. Cause the record in the summer. So in the summer, all the snow melts on the 14ers. And the record in this, guess, guess how fast somebody has climbed them all in the summer. Oh, that's a tough one. Maybe like in, uh, For 30, 40 days? 10 days. 10 days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a short amount of time. Yeah. It's a crazy record. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, it, it, this the day this day and age that we live in now, that's so many fast things happening. Mm. I was just in Zermatt the, the other day. Uh, and from the town of Zermatt, you stare up at the Matterhorn. Yeah. The beautiful, incredible mountain right there. And you're skied it. I've skied the east face of the Matterhorn. Yeah. But the record from town to the summit of the Matterhorn and back down to town is three hours and 58 minutes. That's crazy. It's it's hard to even imagine that's how that's insane. possible. <laughs> that's so insane. there's you know there's records all over the place now that are just mind blowing and it's kind of cool to see and I'm actually glad that I am not a professional uh, athlete in in his 20s right now because there's so much pressure mm. to do things in a way that I didn't have to do. You know I was ski mountaineering which was amazing. But nobody was saying like there was no website fastest known time, and you know you didn't have all this pressure of Instagram no. and things to like, you know I was just doing it for the love of doing it. Mm. I wasn't doing it to post photos. It sounds like a better way of doing it. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> part of your work today, it's uh, guiding people. Yes, and I assume that you maybe guided someone when we were in Zermatt as well. Now that's correct. Yep, in the Zermatt uh, Tiverbier race. The Patrol de Glacier, PDG. And then you have a you have a client. Yep. And he or she wants to do that competition or, or that tour. Correct. And you say, yes, let's do it. Yes. And you go. Yeah, exactly. And that's your job. That's my job. And a lot of times I will bring ideas to my clients and say, hey, let's go on a sailboat trip in Lingen and go ski touring. Or let's go powder ski in Japan. And they'll be like, okay, that's cool. You organize it. So um, it's a lot of places <laughs> What that a job. I want to go. <laughs> What a job. Yeah. I'm bringing, the pe- I'm bringing people skiing where I want to go skiing. Yeah. This is what I was just doing in Alaska for a couple of weeks was bringing clients to these incredible mountains, sharing my passion, helping them with their skills, mm-hmm. getting stronger. Each week is like a progression where day by day we get on bigger and steeper lines and all of those things. And mm. and so for me, skiing with clients, being a guide is such a great way to give back and share my passion for skiing. Um, well, so I can push their boundaries, but at the same time, I'm very much within my own and yeah. that's a safer place to be. Yeah. Rather than when I was competing or filming, doing these ski mountaineering projects and I was pushing my own boundaries, that's a dangerous place to be. Mm. It's very much on the edge. But when you go to these different places, do you have some secret spots or s- some places that you would like to share with us today? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> when we turn off the microphone. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to take people skiing in places where nobody else is. I, I don't like... I assume that. Yeah. I don't like being... Uh, well... I don't like lift lines. I don't like traffic. I don't like standing in any kind of line. I don't like being around a lot of people. I like being out in nature with a group and just enjoying the the solitude and kind of being remote. That's really a cool feeling. Mm. So I like going to the little corners of the world where there's good skiing and no people. And Norway's that kind of corner? Yeah, I think so. I mean, north the north of Norway is vast mm-hmm. and there's a lot of incredible mountains and terrain and Yeah, it's it's more and more busy in the last 10 years. If you if you're in Lofoten or in Lingen or in Svalbard in the springtime, or, or you know, there's skiers coming from all over. It's on the map. Like mm. people know about it. Yeah, and uh, so, but that doesn't that doesn't diminish the experience. The no, experience no, no. is still great. What do you think about when you get your client skiing the first day? Yep. 
Are they good skiers? Or do you think that, oh, shit, no. <laughs> this client is not a good skier? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I always make sure to ski with them before we go on a trip somewhere. Okay, so you test them back home. Yeah, they've either skied with me in Aspen or they've been to my ski camp in Portillo, Chile. Or, you know, we've... You have um, your own ski camp, like the, yes. the superstar camp. Yeah, exactly. My superstar camp in Chile. Yeah, you've done your homework. I'm impressed. <laughs> um, so I, I tend to meet people you know, through either skiing in Aspen or some other type of trip, a heli ski trip, perhaps, or, uh, you know, a corporate speaking engagement. And they come up to me and say, Hey, you know, I'm a skier. I've done this, 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 and I'd love to do something with you. And, you know, we talk through what the expectations are. Um, so very rarely, in fact, almost never have I gone on a trip with somebody in the first day to answer your question, been like, Oh shit, this person's not very good. (laughs) But Um, how are your clients handling your like honest feedback during the this test day? Well, it's, I wouldn't call it a test day. I would call it more of uh, just us getting to know each other. Okay. So, so there's no crying. No, no. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I will be honest with them and say, listen, I think we can, ski- we can keep skiing together, but you're not quite ready to go deep powder skiing in Japan, for instance, or, mm. you know, on this Alaska trip with me. So let's do this other thing first yeah. and then we'll get to there, you know, because I want to work with them. I want to help them improve. Mm. Um, I love being a coach and a teacher and, and, and mentoring younger skiers and all of that. That's like that, that idea of giving back to the sport is really important to me mm. in a lot of different ways. Um, not to change the subject, but like, uh, so yeah, I'm, taking people out there and trying to deliver the dream ski experience. Yeah. This is, uh, they are rich people or? You kind of have to be. (laughs) to to do these things. I mean, maybe rich isn't the right word, but like you got to have some budget. Yeah. Yeah. The priority is to go skiing with Davenport. That's right. And if we were to have like a short superstar ski camp right here, right now. Yeah. What is, how would you describe some of the like basic techniques of skiing? How would I describe, let's see, I think to start with, we would talk about um, sort of the foundation of your body position. Mm-hmm. So human beings, you know, like we, we stand vertically upon the earth, like yeah. we don't stand at an angle, right? So when the slope of the the ski slope gets steeper you have to get steeper meaning you have to get forward Mm. right you have to get over the front of your skis you have to be an in an athletic position no matter if you're playing football or hockey or basketball you're bending the knees you're looking forward your hands are up you're ready you know if i'm uh coming at you with a knife and we're about to have a fight, (laughs) you're not going to stand up with your hands by your side. You know, you're going to get ready. (laughs) Hopefully. Yeah. So in skiing, it's a very active sport, right? And things are coming at you and you're having to deal with them. Uh, I like to think of skiing as a series of linked recoveries, meaning you're always trying to recover to get into that perfect position, Mm -hmm. but rarely are you in the perfect position. So in, in my ski camps, we're starting out with like the fundamentals, body position, hand position, tactics and strategies of looking down the hill to see as far ahead as you can Mm. in your turns. Like when we're driving a car, we're not looking five meters ahead of us. We're looking 50 meters ahead of us, especially as you go faster, right? Uh, When you're extreme skiing and you're going slower and it's really, really dangerous, you might be looking one meter or two meters ahead of you. Uh, But, you know, when we're downhill ski racing, you're looking 100 meters ahead of you. Mm. So thinking about all of these strategies of of the approach to skiing, um, thinking about planning your run. So when you stand on top of something and you look down, you can see your turns in your mind. So you don't just drop in and go, oh, what am I doing now? Well, I'll just make a turn here, make a turn there. You've already, you've already got a plan like a routine. Um, And then for sure, we're talking about approaches to equipment, being able to transition from climbing to skiing or skinning Mm. to skiing or skiing back to skins, all those kinds of things. Um, And then there's, there's a lot of individual techniques. I mean, I'm not teaching in a way like maybe a ski instructor would from a a textbook. Nope. Everybody can have their own style. Some are more beautiful to look at than others, <laughs> yeah. but uh, you know, I'll help people try to work on, on their style. And all of my coaches at my camp, um, we all have our individual styles. My coaches are Cody Townsend, Michelle Parker, Ingrid Backstrom, and Mike Douglas. 
Wendy Fisher what? has Wendy Fisher has been a long time coach. She, she's not coming this year. Sounds like the best teachers out there. They're some of the best in the world. Yeah, for sure. Uh, some of the most accomplished free skiers in the world. And they're some of my best friends. So we like to hang out together. But each one of them is going to talk about skiing and coach um, with these clients in a little bit different way. Mm. So the special sauce of this ski camp is you get to ski with each coach eat every day. Yeah. Or, you know, you get to ski with a different coach every day. Okay. So today you're with me. Tomorrow you're with Cody. The next day you're going to be with Ingrid and then, you know, and then with Michelle and then with Mike Douglas. And it's a nice variety. And you get, you come home and you're like, I skied with all these people. I learned from them all. And a lot of the, what the clients are picking up is through osmosis, meaning like just skiing together. Mm. You know, the more you ski with someone who's better than you, the more you kind of elevate your game. Yeah. And that, that is a true fact. And what, what should skiers like me, uh, unfortunately, without a background in ski racing, unlearn? Well, bad habits, for sure. Yeah, I assume we tend to have some bad habits. Everyone everyone does. Yeah. I mean, I pro I'm sure I do as well. I'm always working on my skiing. People are like, oh, you, you know, you're so accomplished in this and that. Like, you must not, like, work on things. I'm like, I am working on my skiing every run. Mm. Literally every turn, I'm thinking about things. Just like a professional golfer will never stop working on their swing, right? Or a tennis player never stops hitting balls. You always got to be training. You always got to be practicing. You're always a student. Yeah, always a student of the sport. And I'm always learning. And that's what's so cool. And, you know, what you're doing when you're a teenager or in your 20s will be different than what you're doing in your 30s or 40s. And mm -hmm. that's different in your 60s or 70s. Yeah. Yeah. So there's always something there for us to have fun with and to learn and to experience. And that's why skiing is such a lifelong sport. Mm. It's just the best thing ever. Yeah. Yep. Chris, unfortunately, we are approaching <laughs> the end of this episode, uh, but we would like to ask you some questions that we give every guest in our podcast. Oh, fun. I like these ones. Are you ready? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> What are your best tips and tricks to create nature experiences in your everyday life? Oh, boy. Um, the first thing that I do Uh, in the summer and in the winter, in the morning, I make a, I make a tea or a coffee and I'll step outside, even if it's cold and I'll just take, it's almost like meditation. Just take 30 seconds and smell the air, look at the sky. I'm thinking about the weather for the day, maybe what I'm going to put on, but I'm also just like taking a moment to start my day with that deep breath of being outdoors. Mm. That, that, that works really well for me. So go outside just after you wake up. Uh, yeah, just after I, I make a hot drink and kind <laughs> yeah. of put some clothes on and kind of just start the day with that. Uh, that feels really good. That's a good um, idea. And then the other thing is like my mentality, like my mindset is kind of that of an athlete, kind of always be training. Try to do something every day that is going to help improve your physical being. Because if you're strong physically, then you'd be stronger mentally. Mm. So like if I'm walking up the stairs, I'm running up the stairs. Like, always be training. The athlete comes back. Yeah. <laughs> Which international celebrity would you like to invite on your next trip? Ooh, that's a good one. You know, I'm I'm not someone who's, like, really starstruck by celebrity necessarily. Um, but I would like to... Unfortunately, he's not he's not a skier, but his wife is. But I would like to go hang with Barack Obama. Barack Obama. Yeah, and his wife Michelle Obama is a skier, and she has skied with my wife several times ah. uh, in Aspen, and she's the just the most lovely person. And I've never met Barack, uh, Mr. I should say President Obama, but I would really like to meet him and introduce him for skiing as well. Yeah, or just take him on a hike. Yeah, you know, just something outdoors because he, he is an athlete. He played basketball, and you know, uh, it would be cool to just take him out in nature and have a conversation around a around any topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What are your three favorite Norona products and why? Wow, that's awesome. Um, I will I will say, first of all, I've only been with Norona for less than a year, so I'm learning about the incredible product line. I was pretty much living in my Lofoten Pro jacket this winter. I wore it all the time. Uh, so comfortable, perfect fit. And it was cool to see how the jacket sort of wore in 
throughout the winter. It started kind of, you know, brand new and crispy. And then it had this sort of change of personality and became kind of part of me. Which <laughs> I was, understand in, what you mean. Yeah, in a, in a, in a really good way. Uh, the second piece I really love is my uh, Lingen flex pants. So my Lingen soft shell pants. Yeah. Um, I, love, I love the cargo pockets. I'm just, it's like a war, it's like almost like a uniform for me, like a work pant. I've just, mm. I'm in those all the time. Made for backcountry. Yeah, skiing. yeah. Just fantastic. Um, and then I will say, I, I, the thing I wear mostly is the Falcatin uh, hoodie, you know, kind of a yeah. casual yeah, yeah. Uh, synthetic hoodie. Um, I have two different colors um, and I wear it on the airplane. I wear it in the car. Sometimes I wear it under my Lofoten skiing. Um, so that's a really versatile piece uh, that, I, that I love and kind of wear all the time. That's a good tip. What kind of steps have you taken in your life to to live a little more environmentally friendly? Yeah, I have been a vegetarian for 35 years. You have? Mm-hmm. So no meat. Nope. Since I don't know, the early eight or no, since like the late 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Um I will say, to be honest, in the beginning, it wasn't because of environmental causes. I just never liked meat. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest. It was more of a taste thing. (laughs) But as I got older, I realized this is actually a great environmental thing as well. Um, So I have that. Uh, The other step I've taken is our our home is 100% powered by renewable energy. Um, It's funny, being here in Norway, you see so many electric vehicles mm-hmm. and that is so inspiring and so cool and we don't we're not quite there yet in the states so my next step would be to purchase an electric car yeah um so i haven't really figured out which one that will be but uh, that's that's in the works you should go for it, it well it accelerates I was, like a sports car you know it's yeah just, i know i know i see so all fast. these electric porsches driving around <laughs> oslo i'm like jesus but uh but my, you don't need a porsche no i don't need a porsche in my um teammate who you interviewed in the previous podcast, Nicolas Shermer, yeah. he has this Polestar car, yes. which I, I just started to get to know. Great so, design. Super interesting. What do you think about the environmental awareness in the international ski community today? I think the ski community is way ahead of the curve when it comes to environmental awareness. Skiers typically and snowboarders are typically people out in nature and they understand that they like snow. They mm. like a lot of snow. And when it's a drought, it's too dry and there's no snow, it's bad and climate change is real and they can do something about it. And Mm. that's why organizations like Protect Our Winners have been so successful because they can mobilize this big community of skiers and snowboarders and outdoorsy people that actually care Mm. about the environment. Mm. Uh, I think kids these days growing up, if they're not outdoors, then how will they know about what's happening in in the nature and how will they care about it? Mm. What's your favorite soundtrack to skiing or driving your future electric car? My favorite soundtrack? Yeah. Oh god, I love I love so many different types of music um from jam bands to reggae to my I mean I follow my kids uh Spotify hip hop channels uh so and I watched your movie of the 14ers yesterday. Oh, yeah. And it was kind of like metal there was a bit of that in there. <laughs> a little bit yeah, of metal. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm a, a metal fan. No, I'm not a metal fan. Okay. I, I do like it, but I'm not a, I'm not like going so to So there shows. was another guy deciding the soundtrack of that movie. Yeah, we worked on it together. <laughs> Although I just heard that Tool played in Oslo. Yeah. I, I can't believe I missed that. <laughs> I would have definitely liked to have been there. So we'll go with Tool. <laughs> That's a good one. Is there anything else you would like to say before we have to say goodbye? Any life motto or life philosophy? Mm. Yeah, I'll share one quote uh, that comes to mind um, that has kind of inspired me. And I, I like to believe in like, we all have a certain superpower within us, but you have to kind of work hard to figure out what that is and bring it out. And so the, there's an American poet named, named uh, T.S. Eliot. And he said, only those who will risk going too far can possibly find out how far they can go. Ah, that's a good one. So how do you know what you're capable of if you don't get out there and try and take some risk? And maybe you go too far. You know, hopefully you don't get hurt physically, but like, go for it. Get out there and try. And then you'll find out that you can actually do a lot more than you ever thought. Let's listen to T.S. Eliot. Thanks a lot, Chris. You're a great inspiration to all of us. And we wish you best luck in Thanks, your future Ivan. Yeah, projects. this has been great. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we'll see you out in the mountains. Hopefully, we'll be back here as well. You, for sure. 
for a new episode. Don't pull my arm too hard. I'll come back anytime. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Norana Podcast is published by the Norwegian outdoor company Norana Sport. Norana has been producing premium outdoor products since 1929. Check out our clothes, backpacks, tents, sleeping bags and skis on our website norona.com. There you will also find more inspiring stories about our rich history, the expeditions we have participated in, our ambassadors and our ambitions in sustainability. Thank you for listening to Norona Podcast. We really appreciate it. And welcome to nature.